Hello and welcome back to season two of Diaries of a Lady Gardener. If you think gardening is cool and would rather take a trip to the garden centre than go out-out, you found the right podcast, but also you're not in the minority. Research from Draper Tools has revealed that over 80% of young people officially think gardening is cool, mainly because of its benefits for mental health and the environment. Draper Tools are back for season two as sponsors of the Diaries of a Lady Gardener podcast. So why not join me in following them on Instagram at Draper underscore tools. In this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with self-taught gardener, YouTuber, author and all-round female gardening inspiration, Tanya from Lovely Greens. Her book is packed with ideas on what to grow in the garden and what to do with your produce. So whether you're just starting out or you're an avid gardener looking for something a little different to try, you'll definitely find this chat an interesting one. Get ready to hear about where her journey began and all about her life living the dream on the Isle of Man. Hi Tanya, how are you? I'm great, thanks for having me Shannon. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. I'm really excited to chat about lots of lovely um, garden things with you. Um, first and foremost, congratulations on the launch of your new book. Thank you very much. I can't believe it's been out for what, three, four months now? How has it been? How have you found the process of launching a book? You know, it was stressful to begin with because the book was delayed because of COVID. And so there were two months of me just basically panicking and people were getting a little bit anxious about their pre-ordered books and all of that. But it all worked out in the end. And it is just such an incredible experience seeing people post pictures of my book in their hands, in their homes, trying out some of the ideas and recipes and and sharing it with their friends it's been great yeah it's a really lovely book it's so I love the stories from different women across the across the world um and so many easy to do projects as well quite a lot of the time I see projects online and they're just not very achievable to sort of the everyday gardener um but so many of those I've got little tabs on to sort of try later especially sort of the the homemade skincare I think that that sounds really interesting well, it, it kind of closes the loop. And when we tend to garden in a practical way, people tend to grow things like food, the edible garden. Mm-hmm. But there are so many other types of plants that we can grow. And then also it's an education process of knowing about those plants, using them, and also understanding some of the issues behind each one of the different artisan crafts. So, for example, natural dyeing, so with fibers and wool, there's an incredible amount of pressure on water and the environment in places that manufacture textiles and that dye using synthetic dyes. Absolutely catastrophic for some parts of the world. So knowing a bit more about that, even if you don't take up natural dyeing, even if you just dabble in it and have a bit of fun, it's an educational experience and, and you get to know that. And that's what I wanted to do with the, the women's stories, first of all. So the different gardeners in each section is to share why they're gardening and why, why are they growing the specific type of plant and how are they using it? And I hope it serves as inspiration for people to want to explore each of those different types of plants on their own. 
Definitely. And like you say, it doesn't matter whether you're going to do that forever, whether you're forever going to make your own skincare, that sort of understanding behind it. I think that's probably part of what makes growing in general such an amazing experience because you're not just eating produce that you've grown, you're understanding the entire process of how a tiny little seed is sort of like growing and developing and battling all of the elements to become that crop that you eat at the end. It's a lot more of an experience rather than just a sort of, I'm going to eat this carrot. Yeah, you appreciate that carrot. And the first time Gardner grows a tiny little, not even the size of a pinky carrot, and that carrot is going to be so much more treasured than the finest carrot from the supermarket or farmer's market. It's that experience of watching it grow and fighting for it to be a harvest because when you're gardening organically you're going to, you're going to be up against challenges like slugs and snails and and weather and and beginner knowledge of, of gardening but you could take that experience as a beginner or or more experienced gardener and apply it to so many other types of plants and another reason that you would want to do that is that if you wanted to get into herbalism and make your own natural medicines, if you wanted to get into making soap and skincare or natural dyeing, a lot of the plants that you can purchase, that you don't have to grow, that you can purchase pre-mated and dried, a lot of them have dodgy traceability. Mm -hmm. So you might not necessarily know where they're from, who harvested them, when they harvested the plants, if those people were harvesting them from the wild and maybe taking out that entire plant in that area because they were motivated by poverty. So when you're growing your own plants and using them in different ways, you're keeping it closer to home. You can keep it at, under a bit more watch and not only watch of your own eyes in the physical world, but also from a value perspective as well. Yeah, absolutely. I can completely agree. Um, so just taking it back to the beginning, can you tell us a little bit about how you got into gardening. I know that you grew up in the States where growing must be quite different to how it is here. I'm from the part of the States that has climate very similar to Britain, mm -hmm. but the summers are a bit warmer. So it, it's very similar to be fair. It's, I'm from the Pacific Northwest, mm -hmm. so Washington State on the West Coast. And I grew up with a gardening farming family and it, it was just something that was normal to me. I mean, as kids, you do chores and you do bits and bobs. You're involved in it, but you don't, you're not as, you're not as, I guess, attentive to the learning process. You just absorb it. And I think hit my teens, it was like most teenagers didn't really have any interest in gardening. Did the college career thing in my twenties. And I guess as I drew a little bit closer to 30, I started developing an interest in plants. And it's funny because it started with coming across an episode of Gardener's World, which blew my mind, an entire TV program based on gardening. I mean, I, I do believe that there are some in the States now, but in the past, I mean, the closest thing that you would get to that, like Martha Stewart. And so I got hooked. And I started experimenting in London where I was living, still working quite long hours. At the weekend, it was just plants. And I didn't know anything about plants or growing. I just bought things from the garden center and I would plonk them in. And I would try to remember, 
how my grandparents grew and my mom grew a little bit as well. And uh, just trial and error and learning and reading. I did lots of reading and watching videos. And then when I moved to the Isle of Man, and that was 2010, I had the opportunity to explore some of my interests. I had a bit of time. And so I got an allotment, brand new allotment at a brand new allotment site. It was literally a grassy field. The best feeling. <laughs> yeah, well, it was, I got there pretty much as everyone, it was the beginning day for everyone and they fought for that allotment. So I wasn't involved in getting it started, but it was a long fight to get that land and get it sorted. So I just kind of cruised in there after they got that all <laughs> sorted. And I started up that first February, February, 2010. It was just cold and drizzly and everyone had a huge beaming smile on their face. And all the plots were marked out in blue baling twine. And it was like, where to begin? And it started off as a war zone looking in sites, just holes dug randomly around the entire site. And then it started to develop. And now it's 11 years on plus, and it is a thriving organic allotment association. And I still have my plot there and I just love it. And it was, that's the plot that was featured on Gardener's World. So it kind of closed the loop, went right back to the same show. That's amazing. And can you remember what the first thing you grew on your allotment was? I grew everything. <laughs> <laughs> that first year, even, even though it was my first year, I'd had some experience growing at that point in London and I just tackled it. I created all my beds. I actually double, uh, double dug them. <laughs> which, wow very few people would do these days and I, I thought it was the only year that first year it was an absolute fluke it was a hot summer and I was able to grow the most incredible sweet corn like proper ears of corn and ever since I've, I've tried here and there to try it again but <laughs> it's really hit or miss the weather we're so far north mm -hmm. I've actually had a very similar experience so I started my allotment with We'd had a big garden and we'd probably grown plants as children, but um, I got the allotment not really knowing anything about growing. Went all out, probably planted about 50 different varieties of fruits and veggies and just went all out. I thought, like, if I'm going to go for You're it, gonna I'm going to go all out. Yeah. <laughs> and everything, nearly everything, there probably was quite a few plants in Plant Graveyard, but I think for me, I was just over the moon that. 90% of things had succeeded and my corn was amazing I've never had corn as good as that um since but it's that first year where you really just kind of like throw everything into it and then you're like wow this is amazing uh -huh. and then you try the next year and you're like oh <laughs> yeah last last year was only my second year this is only my third year so I'm still quite new but last year was a disaster I I think probably 10% of the crops were successful and the rest was just a nightmare but last year we had such a long hot summer with very little rain whereas this year we have had nothing but rain <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes and there's nothing you can do about that other than smile and get on with things and that's that's something that we all have to learn and accept when we're organic gardening as well is that you're not always going to get a harvest out of it, but you can take so much more from gardening than just what's on your plate. There's just so many benefits. Mental health, people found that out mm -hmm. really well last year when we were all locked down and 
people were experimenting in their back gardens and window boxes. Of course, the wellness just from being outside, the physical activity. And yes, if you get a, a harvest, that's an absolute bonus, I think, yeah. in, my, in my eyes. <laughs> but not, not necessarily a necessity. <laughs> Well, if you look at it that way, you might be sorely disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> well, I started growing more flowers this year after the um, sort of fruit and veg crops were so poor last year. Um, and the veg has been better this year, but the flowers have just brought like a whole nother level of joy and appreciation yeah. to to the allotment. Even from things like herbs, like adding mint to bouquets and sort of utilising everything on the allotment rather than just purely growing it for for food purposes like I was before and I'll bet that you notice an increase in in insects and butterflies and bees and all different types of pollinators so essentially you growing flowers on your plot you took away from it but you also benefited everyone around you by mm -hmm. drawing in those pollinators absolutely and it's amazing to see like I guess it's that other other living creatures enjoying the space just as much as you are like there isn't a day, even in poor weather, where the sunflower corner isn't full of bees and the dahlia bed isn't full of bees because there's loads of cosmos like dotted in between them. And yeah, it's a real like buzzing wildlife sanctuary now. Whereas last year, I don't even remember seeing, I don't know if I just wasn't quite so aware of it, but there definitely wasn't anywhere near as many birds um, or butterflies. This year, I've noticed a lot more butterflies, which is interesting. Mm. Well, the, the birds will be coming in for the other insects are coming mm -hmm. in for food. I'm, sh I'm sure that what you've done is is increase the biodiversity on your plot by planting flowers. And oh, I, I really can't believe so. to this day, there are actually allotment sites that have it in their rules that you are not to grow flowers. No way. Yes. Why? Yeah. When we first, don't know, old fashioned mentalities as far as what you can grow. And I think that that's changing. I've I've not met anyone with a plot like that. I've just heard it from others. And I'm the secretary of our site. And, and I've had quite a few people ask me, you know, tentatively, am I allowed to grow flowers here? Well, yes, of course. <laughs> that so, is mad. Yeah. I remember reading, actually, when I was um, studying my exams in June, that um, cottage gardens were typically just growing vegetables because it was kind of a plot of land that they had on the sort of wider grounds that they were caring for, for the owner of the grounds. Um, but apparently, because they didn't have very good preservation preservation techniques, a lot of the crops went mouldy and it just stank. So they started growing flowers to mask the smell of the sort of rotting vegetables. And oh, things really? Like that. <laughs> apparently, like, I read it and I was like, that that's crazy that that's how the cottage garden has kind of evolved from the fact that they were growing those flowers to mask the smell of rotting vegetables. <laughs> Perhaps it's, I guess, a more of an ornamental cottage garden. I know that here we have a, and I mentioned it in the book, there's a, a folk village. It is a village that's owned by Manx National Heritage. It's called Craigneesh, and it's a preserved 19th century village. So all the cottages are there and, and their little gardens behind. And I learned a lot about how people would have grown food in the 1800s and even before then through those gardens and occasionally they'll turn over the soil and seeds that have been long buried will start to grow and it's all very incredible but every cottage had a little yard either in front or in the back or both and the men of the village would spend a lot of time working in the fields 
fishing was a big industry here, so they'd be out. So it was the women that would be tending these little plots, and that's where they grew everything that they needed for the house. So it was flowers, it was vegetables, it was herbs, it was um, plants that they might have used on the, on the floor. Uh, it would have been tansy that they would have hung up to keep flies out of the house. So I think maybe there's different types of cottage gardens, I guess more practical ones that maybe more rural folk would have used mm -hmm. to basically have to grow everything that they needed for the house. And then of course, more ornamental ones. Mm -hmm. That is amazing though, isn't it? Just to think that yeah. they could grow everything that they needed. And they had to, because there was no hospital, there was no supermarket. The transport to and from the islands was rudimentary. And it was up until the, the early part of the 20th century that people still lived in Manx cottages with packed earth floors. So mm -hmm. <laughs> it's not that far in the past. It's just such an incredible thing to think that we can, we can have a year where we have a bad harvest like you did last year. But in the past, you have a bad harvest in your garden. It's maybe life or death yeah. in some situations. Yeah, we are very lucky these days with the advancements that we don't have to solely rely on it. But it would be nice to get back to that somewhat, um, which brings me on to my next question, which is about how you sort of got into medicinal gardening and sort of those plants that can serve a purpose beyond just enhancing the taste of our food. Well, I think I grew up with some of it. I have a very earthy set of grandparents, grandmother now, my grandfather's uh, passed away. And so that was always in the background, but there's also my interest in beauty products as well. And I think as women, I mean, we, we, over our lifetimes, we've come across so many products, use so many products. And when I was in, living in London, I was becoming really aware of all of the, the synthetic fillers and ingredients that are used in a lot of mainstream beauty. And I started playing with my own recipes and, and making like a lip balm, simple things. And then when I got the allotment, it opened up an entirely new avenue for me because I could potentially grow some lavender and use it in skincare. And I could grow some roses and calendula and chamomile and all of that. And then I was very interested in beekeeping too. So it brought the entire circle together. So the bees are on the flowers pollinating. I could use beeswax and honey from the colonies together with what I was growing. And that avenue, so I taught myself to make soap. I taught myself to do a lot of things when it comes to making beauty and creams and, and all of that through books and online learning. And then it opens up this question of what else can you make? And there are so many pockets of different use plant-based materials to this day, whether it's for wood dyeing, which I didn't even know was a thing. Maybe neither. Making, yeah, to um, making medicinals, making tinctures and salves and, and all of that. And we take supermarkets and pharmacies and beauty counters for granted it's just so much a part of our culture but talking about pregnish and this changeover it wasn't that long ago when we had to make all of our own things and that knowledge is still there those plants are still there and we just have to open our eyes to see that we can maybe start 
growing them again and using them again in a way that supports a greener lifestyle. And if you're in the garden anyway, why not? Because it's absolutely fun. Absolutely. <laughs> um, one of my favourite projects from your book, actually, is the Herb Spiral Garden. Because I yes. just love the sort of way, if you, I don't know if you want to explain a little bit about how the way it works. And it's just amazing. It doesn't just look beautiful, but there's a lot of theory behind it, isn't there? There is. And that was a little element of permaculture that I slipped into the book. I didn't use the word permaculture. I don't think anywhere in the book, but a lot of my ideas are taken from permaculture. So this idea of uh, organic gardening and sustainable, holistic living, so earth care, people care, fair shares, and being smart about the way that we grow and use things. The herb spiral is not my idea, but I was able to present it. <laughs> In a really lovely way. Essentially, what it is, is a spiral that you can make of stone or bricks, and then you fill it in with soil and compost. And it creates a very clever way to grow a lot of different herbs. So whether they're culinary herbs or medicinals or, or, or skincare plants in a relatively small space. And so the idea is that you build up this kind of spiral tower and at the top you would plant plants that don't mind having drier soil because it's going to evaporate and drain from the top first and a bit more sun it's on the top so you would plant things like rosemary and thyme and sage at the top and then as you wind down the spiral you would you would plant herbs and plants that need a little bit more moisture or a little bit more shade because you would think about where the sun is and you use the plants that are on the top to shade those below. And so you can get an incredible amount of plants in a small space because you're building up a bit and it looks really beautiful as well. One Definitely. thing, never put any of the mint family. <laughs> <laughs> They'll just take over. But everything else is pretty much fair game. Amazing. And if you were going to recommend sort of three top herbs for people to start sort of get going with growing herbs with what three would you pick well first of all a lot of culinary herbs can be used in lots of different ways so i would i'm not going to say try this plant or that plant initially because you know what you like you know mm -hmm. like what you would want to use in cooking choose one like for example uh rosemary rosemary is relatively simple to grow you could put it at the top of your herb spiral Try to get a, a cultivar that grows in a smaller, compact form rather than a gigantic shrub. <laughs> That's what I thought at the moment. Well. <laughs> <laughs> it needs to go because it's in this little tiny herb bed and it just takes yeah. over everything. <laughs> yeah, that's the problem with garden centre rosemary. And I've got one of those in the allotment too, is that they, they tend to not have the cultivar listed. So it's just rosemary. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so for example, if you had rosemary, you could use rosemary in cooking. You could use it in crafts. You could dry the, the rosemary and I've seen some beautiful rosemary wreaths that people have made. You can use it in skincare. It stimulates hair growth or something. Oh, really? Yes, it smells great too. So you could use it in handmade soap. I have a great recipe on my website for using rosemary and uh, Cambrian blue clay to make a really lovely soap for oily skin. Yes, it's great for oily skin, of course. And 
it can be used in natural dyeing. There's just so many uses for it. So choose a herb or plant that you like eating first and mm -hmm. then research all of its other uses because if you'd like to eat it, you'll know that it'll at least get that much use. Yeah, that's a really good, really good, um, good tip. I think that when I planted up my little herb bed, I just picked what I thought looked pretty at the garden centre. And so <laughs> things like curry plant, I don't really know what to do with curry plant, but it looks really pretty, but it is that and the rosemary has taken over the entire bed. Um, but I think I am going to build a herb spiral. I've got the perfect space for it and sort of redesign that area um, inspired by your book. Um, okay. Something else on the herbs that I loved from the book is the um, pasta with the herbs sort of laminated in the centre. I just thought that's such a clever, oh, clever so way. Oh, so too. It looks... Have you made pasta before? A couple of times. I bought a pasta machine a few years ago and um, maybe made pasta once or twice. And it was amazing, but I think I just... I maybe didn't quite have the patience for it. It's one of those things that it's fun to do in a group. Mm -hmm. So like a dinner party or you, you could have family over because, I mean, it doesn't take a, a huge amount of time, but it takes a little bit of extra time that make it not an everyday kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So like a special occasion. And if it were something fun, like even if it, even if you wanted to just chop up the chives, and put it between your sheets of pasta. It you can taste the oniony flavor in the pasta a bit, and it looks incredible, and it's fun and homemade. Yeah, but I think there's a lot more you can do too. I think that that sort of adds a bit of an extra element to it. I think I just made like plain spaghetti, and then was eating it kind of like, well, it does taste just like <laughs> the shop bought stuff, and it's taken me a couple hours to get there, but um. I think that that looks like a really fun way. I'd actually love to do it with my nephews. I think that they'd quite enjoy sort of like playing around with it and that more sort of creative yes. thing. That's a great idea. Great idea. And what kid doesn't like pasta? Throw some Absolutely. cheese on it and away you go. <laughs> bit, of, bit of cheese and ketchup. That's what I would have eaten as a child. <laughs> <laughs> on your lovely nasturtium pasta. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> quite the combo <laughs> <laughs> um so moving on to something a little bit different that I like to talk to everyone about um do you have any sort of like epic gardening fails because I think that we on Instagram we always show sort of the things that have gone really well and the things that we're proud of and then I get a lot of non-gardener friends that sort of say oh I just kill every plant I've ever grown and my what I've sort of recently discovered is that actually I probably grow 90 plants and out of those 90, probably 10 to 20 of them do die. But because I've grown so many others, I'm not quite so hung up on it. Whereas they might have tried to grow one thing. That one thing has died and they've put all their hope into that one thing and they kind of get a bit disheartened by it. But so I'm quite keen for other people to sort of share their gardening fails. And even the greatest gardener in the world still has plants that die or a plant nemesis. <laughs> oh, yeah. Every everyone does the most experienced gardener. It happens to them. I mean, Instagram is a funny place because yeah, we don't put our fails on there very often. But instead of focusing on the fact that fails aren't necessarily there, but it's it's also a platform just to teach what you can do. What is a successful tactic? And I think mm -hmm. that's what people are really interested to see. Okay, so fails. I have two epic. Well. I've got a 
lot more than just two, but just two that have come to my mind right now. <laughs> and they're both to do with mulch. And oh, this really? is, it is, oh yeah. So when I first started teaching myself to garden, it was from very conventional sources, hence the double digging and all of that. And in conventional gardening, you leave the soil exposed. My grandparents' garden was like that. There was soil exposed everywhere. And so I would do that too. And what I found is that if you leave the soil uncovered, you're going to have weeds all over the place. And I don't like using the word weed, but un uninvited plant guests, let's just say <laughs> that, that compete that compete with your crops. And then it just creates a, a whole lot of extra work. So that was one big fail. And I still remember a friend commenting on a picture I put on my private Facebook when I was when I first started up. I cleared this bed and I was so proud of like the perfect soil just there gleaming. And she's like, mulch, mulch, mulch. And in my mind, I thought, yeah, yeah. It is the one of the most important things that gardeners should do just it doesn't matter well it does matter and we'll get to that the second the second fail next choose appropriate compost aged manure mushroom compost uh, whatever is appropriate for your climate as a mulch and cover the soil you don't have to you don't have to be a no dig gardener to mulch just cover it and oh my goodness your plants will stay hydrated because it locks moisture in the soil it will keep wild plants from sprouting and creating all the extra work. And it stops soil erosion. So the dried out soil on the top, it can blow off of your plot in your garden. So my second one was I was experimenting with mulch. And there are a lot of American gardening guides out there and I read a lot of them, get information. And it was 2015 and I've been using aged manure, which I still use to this day because it's readily accessible and it really works for me. But people were going on, on about using straw as mulch. And I thought I could get a gigantic bale of straw. I'll bet some of the other allotmenteers at our site would like to pitch in too. And that's a great inexpensive mulch that we can put on the ground. Well, unfortunately, if you live in a damp climate, and you put straw on your garden beds, it creates the perfect place for slugs and snails to hide yeah. and reemerge <laughs> at night and decimate your plants. And so that year, my garden was decimated. And I feel really guilty because one of the other people who got straw that year had a really bad experience and she gave up her plots. Oh. <laughs> I feel so, I feel so bad, but. <laughs> It's a big lesson learned. I carried on. <laughs> big lesson learned. And so not, and that's that's something that I think a lot of people should know as well, is that you might see gardeners on Instagram or TikTok or wherever, but their climate might not be the same as yours. The way that they garden might not be the best for your garden. And so finding people who are local to you even if it's not someone famous, just someone who's a great gardener in your region and asking for advice, bouncing ideas off of them, that is such, is so much more valuable 
in learning how to garden than than watching people who are famous for gardening definitely and different things work for different people I think quite a lot of the time we get hung up on like this this is the right way to do it but there's so many different ways of doing pretty much everything I've had the exact same with the mulch I put straw under my strawberries and then the slugs will eat my strawberries and then I had it does well I mean it does work but if it rains the slugs are gonna move right in yeah yeah and then I had um last year I cleared the plot it might have even been the year before now I cleared the plot of what I didn't know was forget-me-nots and put it all in this compost heap with loads of other weeds and wood chip and then when I meant to (laughs) move the pile I was like oh look at all this amazing compost put it everywhere all over my fresh no dig beds and then this year was like hmm it's forget-me-nots that I've put over every single one of my and you're going to have them forever (laughs) yeah they're beautiful they're a nuisance they are the bees love them they're edible too yeah edible flowers they dry really nicely as well so I have made pressed flowers from them even though a little part of me really hates them (laughs) but yeah I mean it's a big lesson plants are tenacious yeah (laughs) yep um so can we talk about your beekeeping sure sure how how do you find being a beekeeper I think that every gardener or person who's got enough space and a larger garden should have a colony of bees. Not only would it be helping bees and they desperately need help, but they're such great pollinators and they will not only pollinate within your garden, but they fly one and a half miles, is it, from their colony in all directions. So they're out foraging, they're bringing back nectar for their own purposes, but you get a honey harvest as well at the end. And I was really interested in keeping bees because of that and seeing them in my garden, in gardens, I should say in plural. And so when I got to the Isle of Man, I took an intro to beekeeping course that the local beekeeping association offers every year. It's a really inexpensive course. It's over six weeks. I think it was 30 pounds. Wow. Basically... They're just trying to encourage people to take up beekeeping and to learn it, to do it properly and to take, to take care of bees because we're very special on the Isle of Man for bees in that we don't have the viruses and parasites that a lot of the world is dealing with. So namely the Varroa mites. We're one of the only places in the world that does not have Varroa mites. And that makes it really easy to be a natural beekeeper here. So I don't use any chemicals in my colonies whereas people in the UK if you're taking care of your bees properly you should be putting traps in your colonies to to catch and to treat varroa otherwise they can take over the entire colony and wipe out all your bees oh wow so or contribute to wiping out the bees there's there's a lot of factors and they're not quite sure how it all happens whether it's weakened immune systems combined with other factors but One thing I can say is is that the bees on the Isle of Man are very healthy and it's rare to hear of people who have lost a colony. Occasionally, if we've had a very cold winter, you'll hear of a beekeeper say that they lost a hive or two, but Mm -hmm. it's never down to disease or suspected varroa. 
So yes, I took the beekeeping course and because of Varroa, we do not, uh, the Island Man does not allow imports of bees or of used beekeeping equipment. So one of the instructors gave me a nuke, so a very small colony of bees, which I put in my car and I drove through the allotment and I got started with my first colony that grew out. And at one point I had three colonies and now I'm back down to two. And they, each of them, I think produces about 50 jars of honey oh, wow. each year. And I don't even take all of the honey because it's really important to me that the bees keep some of their honey for the winter. So they actually, they keep a lot of it. And so I, I do, quietly sell honey. I don't tell very many people about it because it's not a huge amount. And mm -hmm. then I also use the beeswax. So the beeswax from my own colonies. And I also pick up beeswax from other beekeepers on the island because I can't, I can't produce enough beeswax for the products that I make. And so, yes, they serve a really great purpose in the overall grand scheme of things but they also are being supported by my allotment, everyone else's allotments because they're really close to there. Mm -hmm. And I'm, help, I'm, helping, I'm helping bees in the process. So it's a win-win situation. So gardeners, get beekeeping. <laughs> it does sound like a really amazing experience. Me and my mum went on a, um, like a one day beekeeper test, taste tester course. Um, and it was really fascinating to sort of learn about the different types of bees and how bees live. I think we just, we don't have that much knowledge about them. I don't know if it's just in the UK or whether ever, no one really knows that much about it's everyone. bees. But yeah. Everyone. <laughs> but it was so interesting. We're unfortunately not allowed beehives on our allotments. Um, but I know quite a lot of people locally that do it and just find it so rewarding. Well, the thing is, is that if you want to become a beekeeper and you don't have the land for it, ask around. I know of a lot of beekeepers who live in flats or they're not able to have a colony or their hive at home or allotment. And what they do is they work out a deal with someone who has the land and who, but someone who doesn't want to beekeep, but wants to help bees. And usually there's a rent paid of a couple of jars of honey a year. Or something <laughs> like that. So there's, there's always ways. Oh, that's good to know. Um, so also you're a self-taught gardener and um, obviously you've sort of grown up with it as a child and you've gone through your life but um, is there anywhere that you find that you go to more often than not for inspiration obviously you've got your YouTube channel and I'm sure that you inspire a lot of other people but where do you sort of look to for your inspiration? I am very inspired by Charles Dowding Mm -hmm. And in fact, I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent a no dig gardener, but I have quite a few no dig beds. The home garden here, when I start building the beds this autumn, they're all going to be no dig if I can help it. Mm -hmm. And so that has entirely changed my mind. I think back to the days that I was double digging my beds and I just can't believe that I did that. So yeah. what I, what I've done is that a lot, a lot of my beds, actually, because I downsized to one large pot this year since I moved, all the beds on my pot now were dug initially. And so what I do now is I don't dig them. I just, I just pile mulch on top every mm -hmm. year. So they're converted no dig beds. 
And it's incredible how, I mean, there are times that I do have to dig down for like a parsnip or if I'm planting something and you can see the soil structure and I really want to keep building that up. You can see where the years of, of aged manure and compost have made their mark and it has basically helped create more topsoil. So I love that. But Charles Dowding is definitely an inspiration. I love Carol Klein. She was my favorite <laughs> when I first started watching. I I still remember, I still remember um, one of the first episodes that I'd watched, and she was showing how you can collect primrose seeds that are green, just right from the flower, and you can sow them immediately, and they'll grow. And I was thinking at that time, I've got some primroses in the back garden, and I went out and I sowed them, and alas, they sprung up, grew, and I was just so astonished and I, I remember that to this day and I had I had the chance to meet her in person in 2018 at a gardening uh, awards event I think and I've seen the video is did you put up a little video on YouTube yeah I did I think and I've I seen had it. such a little fangirl moment I was like oh my god <laughs> I was so nervous approaching her I was like and you, normally I'm not really that that nervous around people but it was Carol Klein I was like oh my gosh <laughs> <laughs> I actually had a similar moment with Charles Dowding only a couple of months ago, probably last month actually, at um, Hampton yeah. Court Palace Flower Show. I said to my mum, I was oh, like, yes. mum, mum, it's Charles, Charles Dowding, it's Charles Dowding. And she was like, she's oh, like, who is what? that? She actually <laughs> does, she does know who he is and she's all about no dig. Oh, so wow. I was like, right, we'll, we'll go and watch his talk. And then at the end, she was kind of like sat down near the back and I was sort of stood at the front and she was like, go and ask him a question. And I was like, oh, I know exactly what I'm going to ask mom, him. Mom. And he was so lovely. And my mum took some pictures and I look really creepy. I look like a bit of a, <laughs> bit of a stalker in, in the way that she's laid out the photo. And I was like, mum, you've ruined that moment of me meeting one of my garden idols. <laughs> but no, he is oh, amazing he's, and he's such lovely. a lovely guy as well. Yes, I've I've asked him in person about my New Zealand flatworm problem. Oh really? And do you do you know what New Zealand flatworm is? No, I don't think I've heard of it. It's an invasive species in the north of Britain. So the Isle of Man is infested, Scotland is infested, Northern Ireland is infested, and it is from New Zealand. It's a flatworm. It's a slimy, dark brown with kind of cream edging. And it decimates earthworms. So at my allotment site, I have very few earthworms, but it's getting a little bit better, I think, because I'm avoiding digging the soil. And, and that's what I spoke to, to Charles about a few years back, asking him, how can I no-dig garden if I don't have any worms that are going to aerate the soil? and bring nutrients down. And he was telling me about a garden in Northern Ireland that had been using no dig and had been really seeing some success in worms coming back. And so that gave me some hope. And sure enough, I've been seeing more worms. It could be the no dig and the mulching. It could be the hotter summers and the hotter climates that we've gradually been getting each year because they don't like that. They like kind of foggy, wet, moist conditions. Mm -hmm. But regardless, I'm seeing an improvement. And he was just so lovely in, in giving that feedback and encouragement to, to just try it out. Oh, that's brilliant. And I'm glad that the problem is is easing. Sometimes it doesn't really matter what the what the solution was as long as it's getting better. 
Yeah, yeah, it's 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 terrible, and not very many not very many gardeners are aware of it, especially when they're beginners. And it's brought and spread around through things like potted plants, so people sharing plants from their garden to a friend's garden, mm-hmm. and there could be flatworms and their eggs in in the the soil or compost. And oh, there's just so many things that you have to learn with gardening, but mm-hmm. you learn it along the way, don't you? Definitely. And it's quite nice to know that you you'll never get to a point where you've you've learned gardening. Like there's always more that you can know and different ways to do things and different plants to grow. And there's always something to do. It is a pastime <laughs> and a passion that will always give you something to do, no matter what the time of year, what no matter the weather either. There's always things. I'm looking out here, I'm looking, I've got a bank in front of me that I've got covered in uh, dark plastic to stifle the grass and I'm just thinking what am I going to plant here and there every time I look at it I'm thinking and scheming what plants (laughs) am I going to get I'm always looking for where I can fit a few more plants in um and (laughs) so I live I live in sort of quite a small flat so I grow a lot of house plants but my allotment is my main sort of haven um but my sister's got like a little balcony and before she had like a little space outside her house so I've tried to encourage a lot of sort of container gardening have you got any sort of really good plants that you'd recommend for container gardening specifically? For container, well, I have a veggie pod. Would you consider mm-hmm. that uh, a container garden? I grow nearly all of our lettuce or salad greens in the veggie pod now because it's brilliant at keeping flea beetle off mm-hmm. with the covering. It's great for keeping slugs and snails out and it's it's waist height. So it's easy for me just to walk outside and, and grab some greens for uh, dinner or when I'm making Josh's lunch in the morning. So veggie pod has been incredible. I grow a lot of different herbs and pots. I grow lots of uh, scented geraniums mm-hmm. because that way I can take them into the greenhouse for the winter. Yes. And container plants I will confess I do grow lots but they're such high maintenance in that you have to water them constantly and they need feeding Mm -hmm. I don't use feeds in the garden I don't use seaweed feed I don't use comfrey feed I don't use any of those feeds with plants that are growing in the garden in the allotments they those types of things are just so much more important for plants that are growing and able to get those nutrients from mulch and Mm -hmm. from uh from the soil itself so yes they're they're high maintenance but if you don't have any other space absolutely brilliant and you can mollycoddle them in my book um i think it's chapter eight there's a picture of a balcony garden i'm not sure if you saw it yes that's my friend katrin's garden in germany and she that's her only space she has to garden. She doesn't have an allotment and she absolutely loves it. Every day she's doing something for the garden, either inside or on the patio or on that balcony. So it really does show that you don't need a huge amount of space. And if you get to know your containers and what will grow in them and what you need to do to keep them healthy, so the mm-hmm. seeds and the specific type of, of compost that they're planted in, you can grow practically anything. Yeah, and I actually think that sort of a small amount of space in container gardening, it does make you a little bit more creative with what you might grow and how you might grow it, the different containers that you might grow it in, because you're kind of wanting to maximise space a little bit more. I find on the allotment, 
I maybe have, I've got a bit too much of the luxury of space and so <laughs> plants probably aren't quite as tightly packed in as they could be and I could maximize harvests if I really wanted to but I, I do like having the challenge of a smaller space to kind of really make the most of it and see see what you can do you have to be so much more creative and you have to do a bit more research as well because mm. there are say vegetables there are varieties that will do so much better for you if you want to grow them in containers so smaller dwarf varieties or types that you can grow in hanging baskets I won't mind tumbling down and so yes you can be really creative and you can create an absolute balcony oasis and it's a completely different type of gardening. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. And because you're, you've got a smaller space, you can really put your heart and soul into making that smaller space incredible and sort of doing your best. So although they do need a little bit more time and time and attention. Yeah. But if it's a smaller space, it's not a big deal. You can Absolutely. literally stand out there and do all of your watering from one place in some cases. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually my dream. Hopefully next time I move, I'll get a little balcony that I can sort of turn into a bit of a jungle <laughs> you'll be looking at places and be like no this one isn't going to work because the balcony's north <laughs> facing <laughs> yeah I've seen so many people as well who live in like high rises in London who do like balcony gardening that are always amazed that the bees come up quite quite that high like they oh, yeah. just stop at a meter yeah. or a couple meters they will they will go to where there is food there's a, there are a lot of people who keep their colonies on rooftops, especially really? in London. That is one of the most popular places to keep bees because bees that are kept on the roofs, they're not going to be a nuisance to people who are walking around on the streets. And also the sound and the vibration from cars upsets bees. So colonies that are on the ground in the city can really suffer from traffic passing by and people. So having them on the rooftop is a great compromise. They know where to go. They fly straight up, no problem whatsoever. And on their way down, they'll visit everyone's window boxes and <laughs> balconies and head their way down into the park. There's so much forage for bees in cities, so much more than out in the countryside, if you can believe it. Mm-hmm. It's such a nice thought as well, just the bees like living on the rooftops. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I think we're sort of nearly at the time to wrap up this episode, but I've got a couple of questions that I asked to everyone. So they're quite simple, but what is your favourite flower to grow? Well, that's no secret. It's calendula. (laughs) (laughs) I always go on about calendula flowers and you'll find it in many places in the book. It's just one of those flowers that is just dead easy to grow. Mm -hmm. Anyone can grow it. And you can use it in so many different ways. And it's beneficial for wildlife. And it's it blooms every single month of the year in mild places. So I can go to the allotment in February and there'll be one calendula bloom <laughs> basically bursting through the, the gloom with its orange cheerfulness. And I just love that about it. That's exactly what you need at that time of year as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Perfect. And the other question, if you could give one piece of advice to someone just starting out with their sort of garden allotment, container gardening, what piece of advice would you give them? To start small, be it one bed, a window box, a container, just get something in the ground. I think that when you're first starting out, you 
will have the inclination to want to have a garden. And you'll see that featured on Instagram and you, but you have to start somewhere, grow a container, do it well, move up, and then gradually create the garden that you really want to and stop when it becomes too much. We, as the secretary of my allotment, I'm the person who signs people up who are interested in plots. And I'm also the person that is contacted when they decide to give up. Mm -hmm. And I would say that we have a turnover of at least 10% a year of people who give up their plot, if not sometimes up to 30%. Oh, wow. It just depends on how many people who have left and how many beginners have started up because gardening as it's presented in the media, you don't see a lot of the hard work that goes into it and the mistakes and the challenges. So start off small, learn as you go along. You can teach yourself. You don't have to go to a gardening, like a horticultural school. Mm -hmm. You don't have to, to go on a, a famous gardener's gardening course. There's so <laughs> much information out there. But just take it, take it easy and don't be hard on yourself when things don't work out. That's brilliant. That is a perfect piece of advice. Um, so thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure to chat to you and I've probably read about 50% of the book, but I'm definitely going to go and read, read the other 50% that I only had a chance to skim over. <laughs> um, Thanks so much for having me, Shannon. This has been great. It's been so so nice. Um, can you just let people know where they can find you? I know you've got your YouTube channel, Instagram, where people can buy your book. Just look for Lovely Greens online. So lovely in the color green with an S on the end. And if you Google that, I'm sure everything will pop up. I have a website. So lovelygreens.com is where I share written information, projects, etc. I have a YouTube channel called Lovely Greens. My social handles are all Lovely Greens. And I have a, a shop as well. So I sell my book through it, but I also sell handmade beauty products and handmade soap and things like that. But you can explore all of that just by Googling Lovely Greens. Yeah, and you have so much good inspiration in the book on the YouTube channels and on Instagram. So definitely take a look. Um, thank you so much and enjoy the rest of your evening. You too. Thanks, Shannon. Bye. Thank you. I came away from this episode feeling so inspired to start some new projects and really make the most of some of the things on my plot that end up going to waste. I'll definitely be measuring up a spare space for a herb spiral and give some of those homemade soaps and salves a try. Hopefully you've been inspired too and I'd certainly recommend taking a look at Tanya's A Woman's Garden book because it really is a fantastic read. If you've enjoyed listening today, please do subscribe to keep up to date with upcoming episodes and leave a review. In the meantime, I'd love to hear any of your questions and stories on Instagram at diaryofaladygardener or via email diaryofaladygardener at gmail.com. That's all from me for now, but I'll be back next week. Happy growing!